superhero scientists wave home a contracted six inches tall in the Amazon rainforest, the Sword of the Atom. Skullduggery, from DC bonus book number eight, included with the November 1988 cover dated Power of the Atom number four by Joe Calci, Jim Ballant, and Dan Schaefer. Comics were pretty much all anthologies in the early days, and very nearly entirely staffed with new and unproven talent. After all, it was a new and unproven medium. Once the industry got some successful properties under its belt, they got a little pickier about who got to do what. A lot of art was produced by studios back then, so an assistant could train up to a larger role on a more successful feature. The price of comics stayed the same for decades, so they got smaller and smaller for the same dime, with fewer opportunities for younger, unpolished talent. Most typically, they landed in the oldest type of comics, the anthologies, usually horror, romance, or some other genre that allowed for short stories or rotating creative teams on done-in-one tales. Truth to tell, the tendency to use less desirable creatives on anthologies probably helped destroy the viability of that format going into the 1980s. DC still wanted to have a farm team, but with anthologies dying off, they had fewer avenues to develop talent in-house and in-print. Ultimately, the 80s indie comics boom subsidized small press feeders where the big two publishers could cherry-pick from other publishers' best prospects. In 1988, though, DC still had that nursery club mentality and tried to facilitate it through their bonus book program. The New Teen Titans was arguably DC's biggest success story of at minimum the early 80s, and it launched with a 16-page original preview story given away as a bound-in premium with DC Comics Presents number 26 at no additional cost. DC tried to replicate that hit formula throughout the first half of the 80s to no avail. Then DC took two failures and tried to mash them up into 1988's bonus book program. Put simply, they'd try out green talent in the free bonus stories and hope that the added value would help sales on a given book while potentially offering exposure to the next great talent find. Rob Liefeld was the biggest name to come out of the program, but he'd already been producing work for Megaton Comics and was already booked for the Hawk and Dove miniseries the month after his Jennifer Morgan solo story ran in the low-selling Warlord title. The next biggest was Jim Ballant, the oldest rookie in town. He'd been kicking around the industry since 1984, failing to catch on with backups and DC war titles. He spent most of the late 80s doing heavy metal-inspired cheesecake and splatter covers for Malibu titles, plus the odd assignment for First or Dark Horse. Just another one of those guys who seemed to spend too much time on a gigantic stylized signature. He finally started getting traction with the 1990 Vampire series from the Darkness, which survived multiple volumes and publishers on his now trademark blend of buxom babes and gothic fantasy adventure. That gave him an end for the Batman family of titles, which led to his six and a half year run on Catwoman, his moonlighting at Chaos Comics on Purgatory, and finally his self-publishing Tarot, Witch of the Black Rose for 21 years and counting. In 1988 though, Ballant was still lucky to do the occasional X-Mutants cover. Now I'm not taking a dig at the X-Men franchise. There was literally a line of books set in post-apocalyptic times that was the biggest hit Eternity Comics ever saw, based mostly on infringing Marvel trademarks and the early work of Ron Lim. Marvel had the last laugh though, when they stole Ron Lim and bought Eternity's parent company. Like Power of the Atom main series artist Dwayne Turner, Jim Ballant was part of the generation who lost years of income and service to the principles of the book How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way. In the 1970s, there were only three kinds of comics. The good Marvel ones, Brand Ech, and Stoner Comics with an X. Nobody wanted to draw Brand Ech, so scores of young artists tried to draw as much like John Buscema and John Romita as possible with an overemphasis on realistic anatomy, perspective, and background. The Marvel House style was a more dynamic take on standard issue commercial art, and it was as rigidly applied in the Bronze Age as DC's clinical swanderzonization in the Silver Age. The alternative was 70s Jack Kirby, and nobody was buying that. The tyranny of the Marvel way was so fascistic that every artist on the official handbook of the Marvel Universe was inked by Joseph Rubenstein to make sure they looked uniformly right. Neither Turner nor Ballant garnered fans until they threw off those shackles and got jiggy with it, as was the fashion of the coming times. While Turner probably had more correct fundamentals in 1988, Ballant had a lot more energy and fun going for him, even considering how dodgy and crude his work was on the Adam Bonus book. Here Ballant is really a poor man's amateurist version of his future self, but there's an enthusiasm that spackles over the rough patch that is every 
every single panel of this story. Low rent and basic as the faux cover is, it still betters most of the actual runs. And the splash page of a human-sized Catharthan skull rider on a giant bird crashing through the window of the Palmer's former suburban home at least rivals any other in the series. Rider Norman Brawler isn't who the yellow-skinned barbarian is looking for, but it's immediately odd that the intruder's main concern is more about Gene Loring than the former atomic sword wielder best known in Morlade. I talked too much on the front of this episode to now explain to a highly hypothetical younger listener what a Rolodex is. So just know that it was equally weird for the Barbarian to figure out how to find Ray Palmer via the analog version of Norman Brawler's email contact. It all seems to turn out to be a nightmare Ray's having anyway, though he was oddly upset about having to slit the Barbarian's throat, which isn't the Ray that you and I know. The only part of the nightmare that wasn't real was Ray's victory, since Brawler was being taken out of his rental by EMTs after the Skull Rider's attack. Given the Rider's ranting, Ray's most concerned with Jean's safety, but she's incommunicado at the moment. Cut to day drinkers at a first-class hotel heading back to his room for favors. When the male of the two appears to shrink in stature, the soon-to-be-murdered female gently mocks his sudden shrimpiness. As blood ran down her limp wrist in the next panel, I have to figure someone was influenced by such woman-killing luminaries of the day as the death of Jean DeWolf and Major Force's introductory arc in Captain Adam. They sure knew how to brutally murder women to the furthest extreme the Comics Code Authority would allow in the 80s, let me tell you. Those cold chops were too bloody for the refrigerator, you know what I mean? Cal Thornton is maybe five feet as drawn, but the poor little rich boy is still so homicidally entitled that when the ur-generically named Lab Tech Research Incorporated can't guarantee their ability to keep adding a foot length indefinitely due to his increasing tolerance of the experimental size-altering procedure, he goes all white boy summer on the world. Oh hey, you probably thought I meant that he got rapey. I can't say for certain that didn't happen too. There's a lot of bedroom action at play in this story, but I should specify that this will primarily be grievance-based mass murder. I myself am technically a white boy, and this is kind of our thing, especially lately, but also the entirety of human history with all the colonization and genociding and stuff. Cal Thornton is the one-man Mickey and Mallory of Last Chance YOLO spree killing, starting with blowing the scientist's head off with a magnum and turning the dial up to 11 on full-body girth enhancement. It turns out that he was Gene Loring's stalker ex before Ray Palmer, which tracks, until Ray Palmer beat him bloody, which also tracks. Ray is the Chad of advanced theoretical physics, let me tell you. Even though Cal only adds about a foot, his raptor Steve Deodata gets into them territory when it gets hit with them vita rays. Cal Thornton rides his bird to the penthouse apartment of his ritzy parents, changed into a robe and pajamas, bursts into the bedroom, makes his being slightly below average height the cause of all the world's troubles, changes clothes again, single-handed, bare-handed, Menendez broed his folks, extreme Mo Howard style, next morning, spears himself in yellow grease paint head to toe, cosplays as a skull rider, flies to Ivy University where Ray is teaching a class under an alias, unconvincingly, before being called out by a student. Cosplay Cal crashes class. Ray somehow shrinks them both, plus the bird, and they all tumble into a replica of Mayan temples Ray was using as a teaching aid. We're running on Golden Age Fletcher Hanks logic here. Just go with it. Ray flips the bird with a power cable. The fake Skull Rider literally pulls the plug. We're not going to get into Skull Rider feeling like a double entendre, but doesn't make sense as such. That's a sort of the Adam joke, and we're already running long here. The Adam doesn't buy the Skull Rider act for a second, and immediately makes Cal Thornton. This is the most realistic thing to happen in the Power of the Atom series to date. No amount of body paint is going to render your ex's creepy stalker unrecognizable, and you never forget an ass you kicked. Those are hallmark moments in life. The fight moves underwater, and the Atom has to punch a fish. I'm not gonna lie, being more exciting than 1988 Dwayne Turner is not actually very good in the grand scheme of things, and it was at this point that I had to go back a couple of pages to be reminded that this was not a local Ivy Town lake, but the model in the classroom. Also, isn't it some form of animal 
animal cruelty to keep a common aquarium fish and the tiny sliver of actual water within a scale model of Mayan civilization in a college classroom. Ballot's a good man who makes a point of drawing the water filtration system for that poor fishy. Cal Thornton isn't as good a marksman as he thinks he is with a bow and arrow. Plus, when it comes down to sword fighting, the tiny titan does that density shifting thing that allows him to shatter Cal's blade. The mighty might even breaks dude's arm with the same blow. Ray Palmer then threatens that he could execute this mother murderer and no jury would convict him. But he's a civilized man now. That's code for they're both white guys. Cal Thornton was just having a really bad day, y'all. Besides, it's not like he's literally an extremely rich madman who could hire the finest lawyers to get in the lightest possible sentence. He's only been nursing a homicidal grudge against Gene Loring and Ray Palmer since college. Why would the Adam see this Caucasian man as a more immediate and indefinite threat than a 6th century yellow guy from an opposing tribe who is probably only raiding New Morlade for rations whose body Adam dumped on a pile of corpses he personally delivered to Katarthan Hell five issues back. Wow, the art has gotten really bad by this point. Like, printed locally, so you have to buy a few pity copies to collect dust on the more poorly lit and remote part of the comics rack bad. Yet somehow, still better than looking at Dwayne Turner's creepy, weird, disproportionate talking heads on supporting characters. Also, this is Joe Calci's second and last bonus book, and also book Full Stop, which operates on sometimes literally dream logic. And I'd still rather read his Power of the Atom over what Stern's offered so far. I'll take insanity over a numbing predictability. Plus, the only flashback is actually necessary and provides new information. I wish this mainstream comic had the creative team from X-Mutants instead, under sentences never before uttered. I bet Ron Lim would have been a blast on the Atom too. Random fact, I think Joe Calci went on to become general manager, advertising director for Southern Jersey's Daily Journal and the Courier Post, all thanks to his DC bonus books, I'm absolutely certain. <laughs> Pals of the Atom still committing to the bid include Cameron Mitchell, Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Collected Edition, Dave's Comic Book Blog, Dave's Comic Heroes Blog, Doc Strange, Ed Moore, Green Lantern HG, I'll Be the Light in the Dark, Iowa's Joe Crawford, Jeffrey Brown, They, Them, Keith G. Baker, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Matt Anderson, MB, Reverend Odell Abner Dracula, Tim Price the Podcrasher, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. MB wrote, This and Sword of the Atom aren't discussed nearly enough in terms of 80s bright spots. Chris Dunford tweeted, I swear the Kane cover for Sword of the Atom number one is my favorite Gil Kane art, and the frog rot. Tim Price added, Who doesn't want to saddle up a frog? It's just awesome. The preceding Atom related program is a non profit fan production. Any copyrighted materials contained therein are believed borrowed under fair use with no copyright infringement intended. Please feel free to leave comments either on the Power of the Atom blog or at Rolled Spines Productions WordPress blog. You can also send us Twitter comments through Commander Blanks, my personal account, or through the Rolled Spine Podcast Twitter. Thank you for listening.